For millennia, people from different countries, cultures, and backgrounds have found direction and encouragement in the inspired pages of the Bible. In his day, Jesus directed listeners to search the prophecies of Scripture to find Him the only way of salvation. 2,000 years later, as we stand on the brink of eternity, we no less need the purpose and hope God's Word provides. Sacramento Central Church brings you Receiving the Word, timely Bible messages presented by Pastors Chris Buttery and Mike Thompson. Amazing revelations await you in God's Holy Word, the Bible. The title to um, the message this morning is Christ's Method Alone. Christ's method alone. One of my favorite stories has to do with one Sir Ernest Shackleton. How many of you have heard of Sir Ernest Shackleton? A few of you, okay. Powerful, powerful story. He was already a celebrated polar explorer, uh, but Sir Ernest Shackleton coordinated the British Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition with the goal of accomplishing the first crossing of the Antarctic continent, a feat he considered to be the last great polar journey of the heroic age of exploration. In December 1914, Shackleton set sail with 27 of his man, 27 man crew, many of whom he said, is said responded to the following recruitment notice. Now just tell me whether you would respond to this announcement. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. You'd be signing up right away, wouldn't you? This, the last of Shackleton's adventures, would prove to be the most challenging and would test the stamina and the backbone of every man who responded to this unlikely recruitment notice. All men did, did make it back safely, but none would ever say they were confident that it would ever become a reality. It's a powerful story. You should take time to read it sometime. Now, these days, few would respond to such a call. However, the Bible reveals a group of men and women, brave individuals, willing to walk through, brave the challenging conditions the world has ever seen. The Bible talks about a time of trouble such as never was. And like Shackleton's men, they too will consider whether they will make it to the end. But they are up to the test. And the reason for that is because they know in whom they believe. They know in whom they believe. Now, Jesus speaks of these individuals in Matthew chapter 24. We've, uh, we've looked at these characteristics before, the last few weeks. Jesus mentions them in Matthew 24. He says, these are the individuals, and we'll put them on the screen for you. These are individuals that will endure till the end. That's verse 13 of Matthew chapter 24. They'll also be, according to verse 14, witnesses to the power of the gospel. And then in verse 45, they will be faithful and wise servants who know how to give bread in due season to those that are hungry. Now, these individuals that live in the last days and are braving the storms and the tumults of the latter days, they realize that there's not going to be a more favorable time than the present to win people 
to Jesus' side. They sympathized with Jesus when he told his disciples at one time that the harvest is already white, uh, the fields are already white for harvest. And then in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, he tells us that the harvest is what? The harvest is great. What did he mean? What did he mean? Now, he wasn't referring to the end of the world harvest where the angels come and gather and separate the good and the bad. No, no, no. This is the, the harvest of the, of, the, of the lost, or at least those who were lost and accepted Jesus as Savior. He's saying the harvest is great, that there are today many men and women, boys and girls, waiting to be gathered in to the kingdom of heaven, into God's last day church. The, the, the harvest is great. And Jesus wanted his disciples really, basically, to see the world around them through new, through new eyes. He wanted them to have a new perspective on the way they viewed the world. Uh, from it's, You think it's telling. Look around you. Are there people really waiting to be gathered in? According to Jesus' words, the harvest is what? Great. The harvest is great. But when we studied Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, the last time we were together we identified a problem. Jesus said, the harvest is great, but there's a problem. What is the problem? The laborers are few. We could say the laboring laborers are few because all those who've given their lives over to Jesus are called laborers. We're called to share Jesus with others. So why are there few laboring labor, laborers to help in the great harvest, to gather in the harvest? Why so few? We looked at several potential reasons. Some laboring laborers are distracted. Some are a little indifferent to the cause, and others just simply are discouraged. And so the question we ask here this morning is, where do we go from here? The harvest is great. The laborers are few. Hmm, where do we go from here? What's the solution? And will more respond to the call? What can we do about this huge, huge problem? Have you ever prayed a, a, a daring prayer, an audacious prayer? Not, uh, not the run-of-the-mill, blessing at the table, mill table, thank you, Lord, for the food today. Bless it to our good, we pray. We thank you for your loving care with others. May we always share. No, not a prayer like that, although commendable and beautiful and nice. No, a daring prayer. Not, Lord, uh, may, may, may I have a good day and please just bless me. Not that type of prayer, a daring prayer, an audacious prayer, a fearless prayer an intrepid prayer. You remember a couple of instances in the Bible where men dared to pray a daring, audacious, intrepid prayer. We think of Moses who stood in the gap after Israel broke out the golden calf and worshipped it. And he prayed, oh, and this is recorded in Exodus 32, he said, oh, these people have sinned a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Was that a daring prayer? That was a bold prayer. That was an audacious prayer. Elijah, some years later, Elijah came on the scene and he stretched himself out three times over the lifeless body of the son of the widow of Zarephath. And he prayed, and it's recorded in 1 Kings chapter 17, he said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's life come back to him. Man. Talk about an audacious prayer, a fearless prayer. Now, Jesus challenges us to pray a daring prayer. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at these words 
Jesus encourages us here today in these last days to pray a bold prayer, an audacious prayer, a challenging prayer. Luke chapter 10 and verse 2. Let's read it together. Jesus said to them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Now watch. Therefore pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. That's a prayer. Now, it may not appear to be pretty daring on the surface, but a careful study of the words revealed in this text that Jesus shares with us uh, finds that this request is simply incredible. The Greek verb here for the word pray is dalmai, dalmai. It means to beseech. It means to, means to plead earnestly. It means to beg. It means to implore. So the word is actually much stronger than just to simply pray or ask for or make a request. The, the verb or the word used here, pray, in Luke chapter 10 is also in the imperative. It's also in the imperative. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest. So what does that mean? What's an imperative? It's simply a command, isn't it? An imperative is a command. An imperative expects active response. In other words, it's not op optional. You've got to do this. They expect an active response. And similarly, Jesus is assuming that we will respond. Pray the Lord of harvest. He's not, it's not a polite suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command. He's expecting an active response. But there's more we can learn from the words of Jesus. When we look at Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, in Jesus' appeal for us to pray, Jesus is asking us to pray earnestly, to plead, to beg the Lord of harvest by using an aorist imperative. He is saying to us, start praying earnestly. You're not praying as you ought to be praying. Instead, you need to start pleading with the Lord of the harvest to do something. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's an aorist imperative. You're not praying, so I want you to start praying. You need to start praying to the Lord of Harvest for this particular thing. Now, perhaps at this point you might be thinking, wait a minute, I don't understand. Why do I need to be begging the Lord of the Harvest? Why do I need to be begging Him to send out laborers? Why do I need to start pleading with Him as I've never pleaded with or prayed with Him before? Isn't this His harvest? Doesn't He already want me to do this? So why beg? Let me suggest that it has more to do with changing our hearts than God's. God knows what's needed. He, he knows what He wants. But our praying this prayer has more to do with, change, more to do with changing our hearts than God's. In praying this way, we're actually giving God permission to do something absolutely fantastic and wonderful in our lives. <clears throat> so what's so different about this prayer? What's so different about it? As we dig deeper, we find the answers in the words of Jesus. We are to start pleading earnestly with the Lord of the harvest to do what? What does it say there in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2? Pray the Lord of harvest to do what? Send out laborers into His harvest. Send out laborers. But send out laborers doesn't fully capture the intent the original Bible writer meant. The verb in Greek for send out is the word apostello, 
from which we get the noun apostelos, and we get the English word apostle. That's right, exactly. When the gospel records that Jesus sent out his disciples, he used that verb apostello, to send out, apostello. But here in Luke chapter 10 and verse 2, it's a different verb. It is not apostello. Apostello is far too polite a translation. The verb used here is ekbalo, ekbalo. Barlow just simply means to cast or to throw. Uh, the gospel writer John, he uses barlow when the disciples cast their net out of the boat to catch fish. They barlow, they, caught, they cast their net. Barlow means simply to throw or to cast. But that still doesn't capture the full, complete meaning of what Jesus is asking us to do. The Greek in Luke chapter 10 verse 2 is not barlow, but ek barlow. The prefix ek stands for out. So, ek barlow, what does it mean? To what? Cast out or to throw out. To cast out or to throw out. And on numerous occasions in the gospel, uh, the gospels employ ek barlow for casting out demons. This is radical. The verb ek barlow also occurs uh, when Jesus drove out the money changers. He drove out ek barlow. The money changes out of the temple. So as we can see, the verb that is used here is not a weak verb. It's a very strong verb. Jesus isn't asking us to pray some flimsy prayer. It's a very strong prayer. What he's asking for you and I to do, for you and me to do, is to plead and beg the Lord of the harvest to cast out, to throw out laborers, to hurl out laborers, to cast out laborers into his harvest. But now... You have to consider that you cannot pray this prayer unless you're willing to be the solution to that prayer. Somebody put the prayer in these words, and we'll put it on the screen, in just everyday vernacular. Lord of the harvest, I earnestly plead you to cast out laborers into your harvest, and you give, I give you permission to begin with me. Amen. We cannot pray this prayer unless we're willing to give, allow God to cast us out into the harvest, to be the answer to the prayer that we are praying. Jesus Himself was willing to be cast out. He's inviting us to pray this prayer. He Himself was willing to be cast out. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. Matthew, record, Matthew records, we're going to go to Mark chapter 1 verse 12. Matthew records that immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Spirit led Him into the wilderness. Later, Jesus emerged from that wilderness to begin His active ministry. In the fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah, the Gospel writer Mark, however, on the other hand, records that Jesus was thrown out. Notice Mark chapter 1, and we're looking at verse 12. Mark 1 and verse 12, notice what it says, immediately the Spirit, what? Drove Him into the wilderness drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. All right, so the verb in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12 is ekbalo, to cast out. Jesus was willing to be thrown out into the harvest. Jesus was not only willing to pray, but he was also willing to be the answer to his own prayer. Verse 14, it says, now after John was put in the prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel 
of the kingdom of God. Now, perhaps at this point you might be thinking, man, what will happen if I give God permission to cast me out into the harvest? What's going to happen to me? Let me just simply submit that that's going to be God's responsibility and not yours. That's God's responsibility and not yours. When the Lord of the harvest throws you out, (laughs) He's not discarding you. He's not putting you in the trash. He's not going to do that. Rather, He's placing you where He wants you to be. He's putting you right where you need to be. Now, for some, it may be a distant land. And and God does that. That's that's His responsibility. We just need to be willing to go. It may be a foreign land. It may be a new place. Or it may be right where you just simply live. And that would be okay as well because we are missionaries right where we are. Your assignment and my assignment is simply willing to be ready to pray the Lord of the harvest, to earnestly plead, Lord of the harvest, I earnestly plead, I beg you to cast out laborers into your harvest and I give you permission to begin with me. I give you permission to begin with me. question is, are you willing to respond to that call? And when He throws you out, you don't need to be scared. You don't need to fear. Jesus knows what He's doing far more than you know what to do with your own life. Which would you rather, trust your journey into the hands of someone who knows what to expect because he or she knows the way, he's got directions, or would you rather trust your safe arrival into the hands of another who has absolutely no idea how to get there? And it's okay to cast yourself at the mercy of Jesus who knows what's better for you than you know yourself for yourself. He knows your life, he knows where you ought to be, he knows where you ought to go, he knows the direction you need to take, and you can trust Jesus with that. You can trust Jesus with that. What picture comes to your mind when you think about working in the harvest? Maybe you think of a a corner street preacher who's standing on his little soapbox, and he's preaching to the crowds as they walk by. Is that what comes to your mind? Maybe you're thinking of going door to door, knocking on some doors. Maybe some missionary work out of town. For some sitting here today, no doubt, these pictures might be foreboding and could probably scare the most willing candidate out of the harvest business. I want to propose a more, the most successful way to reach people for Jesus, the most meaningful way, and everyone can do it. When Christ was cast out, the disciple, when Jesus, rather, when Jesus cast out the disciples with the gospel message in His day, faith in God, faith in His Word was seriously lacking in the world. His Word had been set aside by tradition and human philosophy, selfish ambition and love of pretense and greed of gain preoccupied the minds of men. As reverence for God departed, so also compassion toward men. Selfishness was the ruling principle and the enemy of souls worked his will in the misery and the degradation of the people in that day. What is the condition in the world today? Is it similar to the day that Jesus sent out his disciples? Isn't faith in the Bible being destroyed by the higher critical method of biblical interpretation, by taking a haphazard approach to the Scriptures and by other methods of interpretation? 
Hasn't greed and ambition and love of pleasure a stronghold on people now today as it did back in the days of Jesus? Surely, surely. In the professed Christian world, how many are actually governed by Christian principles? In business, social, economic, even religious circles, how many make the teachings of Christ their rule for daily living? How many? We're living, as one author put it, in, a, in the midst of an epidemic of crime. Corruption prevails every day, brings bad news. Every day brings heart-sickening record of violence and crime, of indifference to human suffering, of the brutal destruction of human life. Every day testifies to the increase of insanity, of murder, and of suicide. And while the world is filled with these, these evils, the gospel is too often presented in so lax a manner as to make little impression upon the consciences and the lives of other individuals. Everywhere there are hearts that are crying out for something they don't have. They long for a power that will give them victory over sin, a power that will deliver them from the bondage of evil, a power that will give them health, that will give them life, and that will give them peace. But how? How? How are we to go about doing that? If we're going to be the answer to our own prayer, Lord, I beg you, I plead, cast out laborers into your vineyard, into your harvest, and then I give you permission to begin with me. How do we do that? What can I do to bring hope and health and healing to others? I want to put a, uh, the answer on the screen for you. This, to me, is the answer. It's found in a beautiful book entitled Ministry of Healing, page 143. And I want you to notice what the author says. Christ's method, what's that word? Alone will give true success in reaching the people. So here it is. Jesus' method of reaching people will give true success to our efforts in reaching people. Christ's method alone will give true success, not some false success, not just a success of numbers and, and, and data, but true success in reaching the people. So what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do that was so effective that you and I can implement, that any one of us can do? This is something that we all can do. What did He do? The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. So first of all, Jesus didn't isolate Himself from other people. Jesus was like salt, and He told you and I, He said, you and I are like the salt of the earth, and we're to be mingled in, uh, in, into, into the community. He mingled with men, not just hung out with them because He just wanted to be cool, didn't hang out with them just because he wanted to do research and study their behavior patterns. Jesus hung out with them for one purpose only, and that was to what? For their good. He desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them. So when they cried, Jesus cried. When they smiled, Jesus smiled. He sympathized with them. And what did he do? What did he go on to do? He what? Ministered to their needs. He didn't just simply say, oh, well, brother, sister, I'll pray for you. God bless you. Be healed. He ministered to their needs. The Gospels are riddled with stories of Jesus healing people. You know, Jesus, his ministry can be summed up as a teaching, preaching, healing ministry. That's it. Teaching, preaching, healing ministry. The three go together. Teaching, preaching, healing ministry. He ministered to their needs. And what did he do? By doing all of that, he did what? He won their confidence. He won their confidence, and then when he had won their confidence, it was at that point he said, come, follow me. Come, follow 
me. Wow. So did you notice? Mingling. Mingling. Desiring one's good. Showing sympathy. Ministering to their needs and winning their confidence. And then he asked them to follow me. Not one without the other. He didn't say, follow, follow me, and then he did all these other things. Neither did he do all of these things and then kept his mouth shut. He did these things, won their confidence, then he said, follow me. Follow me. You know, someone said once, I've never forgotten it, and we used to share this a lot with our literature evangelists in Ontario when, uh, when I worked in the publishing ministry. We used to remind our literature evangelists, people do not care about what you know until they know that you care. And that's certainly a good motto for us as Christians and Seventh-day Adventist Christians to live by. Uh, our heads are swimming with knowledge coming from the Word of God, and, and people certainly need to know the truth, because Jesus said the truth will set them free. People need to know the truth. But here are the steps. Here are the steps. Mingling, desiring one's good, showing sympathy, ministering, and then showing them, showing people you care, showing people you care, and then they will care about what you know. Then they will care about what you know. You notice, and, and you, you probably have noticed as you've read the Scriptures, that Jesus' most effective ministry was a one-on-one -on -one ministry. Yes, He preached to the crowds. Yes, He taught numerous people. But His most successful ministry resulted, was a result of His one-on-one -on -one ministry. Now, we do public evangelism and we ought to continue. We do media ministry and yes, we ought to continue. But the success of ministry in the church is, on, is in one-on-one -on -one encounters. Each one reaching one. Each one reaching one. And you're wondering, hang on a second, that's kind of a slow method, isn't it? That's kind of, Jesus is supposed to be coming soon, how can we tell more people? Well, there's other methods and ways and we shouldn't ignore those, yes. But Christ's method alone will give true success in reaching the people. And what was the method? One-on-one. -on -one. You can make a difference to that one, or to that one, or to that one, because Jesus is living in you, in your heart. And Jesus said, freely you have received, and now freely give. Freely give. Pray that daring prayer. Pray that audacious prayer. What does it say? Pray that, that intrepid prayer, that fearless prayer. Lord of the harvest, I earnestly plead with you to cast out laborers into your harvest and you have permission to begin with me. I don't know what it's going to look like, Lord. I don't know what it's going to turn out like, but you can know today that Jesus knows what it will turn out like. You can know, you can know that he will use you even if you stutter, you stammer, even if you make some mistakes along the way, he's the greatest teacher, and he's very patient. He'll work with us each to reach one for Jesus. Don't fear. Make yourself available to God. Trust him as you allow the Lord of the harvest to throw you into his harvest. And let me just tell you what an experience it will be. Now, as we close, I need to remind you of one more thing. And we put this up on the screen during this series. There's two more sermons to go in this series. It says, Lord, it says, I cannot work my soul to save, for that the Lord has done, but I will work like any slave for the love 
of God's dear Son. We're so glad you decided to tune in to today's Receiving the Word program. To discover more about the Bible, we'd like to invite you to enroll in our free online Bible studies by visiting saccentral.org and click on the Media Resources tab. To listen to other life-changing Bible messages from Sacramento Central Church, go to youtube.com forward slash The Central Connection or visit us Saturday mornings at 1050 a.m. for a live worship experience at 6045 Camille Avenue across the street from Sacramento State University. We look forward to seeing you there.